It is so good to uh, worship uh, Jesus with you, and it's my privilege to be here. Uh, my name is uh, Doug Long. I'm from Harvest in Traverse City, and if you ever make it up there on vacation, come in for a service. We'd love to uh, have you worship with our church family. In so many ways, this feels like home. In fact, um, earlier this year, we were talking about Chris and Lauren. You know, I've, I've known them for over 10 years, and uh, that must mean that they're getting really, really old. And... <laughs> Um, but anyway, it's great to be here. Mostly, I just love the relationship time. Uh, Pastor Brian, uh, who's back in church today from his sabbatical, we're thankful for that. And um, uh, Amy have been a great host, love spending time with them. And um, such an encouragement to my wife and myself and to our church family. So thank you for sharing him. He comes up and preaches for us. And um, so much crossover between our church families, really a point of health. Um, but for today, I ask you to uh, turn with me to Psalm chapter 11. Hope you have your copy of God's Word out and ready to go. It's a short psalm of David. We're going to read that verse by verse and go through uh, this text with four points. But I want to ask this, as you're finding Psalm chapter 11, you know, I'm thankful for the relationships that God has allowed uh, me and us as a family and even uh, our church family, broader yet, to interact here but I'm, I'm wondering about you personally, how is your relationship with God himself? If you were to rank your relationship, one being non-existent, 10 being it's better than it's ever been before, where are you at on that? And so what I want to propose as the end game of any time that God's word is preached, the end game of worship is to corral our hearts from the wandering that is so prevalent and bring us back to a spot where we are once again at the feet of Jesus, enjoying his presence and going, God, I'm trusting you. I'm taking steps of faith. I understand what you've done in my life. I'm so thankful for it. God, I want more. That's the end game. And I hope that you're experiencing that. My, the reality is, if your life is like mine, there's busy things that happen in the summer in western Michigan. And so sometimes our priorities get hijacked, and this is a moment, even in August, to pause the busyness of our summer and focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. And I invite you to do that. I'm going to ask, even before I jump into preaching and reading the text, I want um, you, I wonder if you just bow your heads and um, in a moment of prayer, pick that number between one and 10 in your relationship with God. And when, would you ask God through the sermon and his word today to bump you up closer to 10, whatever step that looks like? Father God, I am so thankful for your word, thankful for relationship with you. God, forgive us, forgive me for times when you are more an afterthought than the first thought. Forgive us, forgive me for the times even in recent weeks where I've trusted more in our own strength and ability than in your strength and ability. God, we're seeking to correct that now. So you do the work through the power of your word. The word that spoke everything into existence is the word that we have. And through the power of your spirit, would you take it now and help your people 
through faith to take the next step to understand what a deep, vibrant, life-giving relationship with you means. It's in the great name of your son, Jesus, I pray. And God's people said, amen. So here's where I want to go. I just have four simple points from Psalm chapter 11. They're very basic. For sure, these aren't going to be like, woo, new thought. It's not that. This is a reminder for you and me to, to base our lives on where only a true unshakable foundation is actually found. Everything else will crumble. And you do know that we live in an unprecedented time in human history where the rapid change that is taking place is um, uh, never seen at a greater moment than now. In fact, just a short time ago, we had actual physical dictionaries in our homes, like with paper and stuff. Like those are not, I don't even know that we have one in our home because now I have Google. And I can look up anything on the internet that I need to. I don't, I don't really need a dictionary or encyclopedia set or any of that stuff anymore. It's all online. That's, that's not a, a new change in the last year. That's been several years ago. But even what I could do on my computer five years ago, do you know now that I can do and do better on my phone? Mobily? Like, I have a camera. I remember back when I bought a 35-millimeter camera and had to, like, mortgage my youngest child to, to purchase it because I needed this lens. You know that I have three lenses on my phone now that take better pictures than I ever could have done with my 35-millimeter camera back in the day? Three. Three lenses. How awesome is that? I could edit photos on my phone. Now, this isn't news to you, hopefully. You can download God's Word on the phone now, by the way. That, I recommend that. That's good. Do you know that my, this, this camera that I hold in my hand, that's also a dictionary and encyclopedia, it actually also doubles as a fantastic flashlight in times of need. Isn't that a great tool? Like, whoever thought of that is brilliant. And not just, not just a flashlight, but I, I do a fair bit of uh, cooking and I also use it as a kitchen timer. I don't even have to touch it. I just say, hey, Siri, set a timer for. Well, wait, hold on. Is it gonna, your phone's going to go off if I say that. <laughs> or my phone will go off. And so I don't even use a kitchen timer anymore because I use the phone. In fact, I woke up this morning. Do you know what my alarm clock? Those are passe. And now I just have my phone that wakes me up. It's fantastic. So all these things, the rapidity of change, just, man, it's coming at us. My, my Meyer grocery shopping list is on my phone. That's easy. And I can just talk it in. Oh, yeah, my phone also works as a phone, too. There's that. Don't forget that. I say all that to this because it's not just with tech. There's personal change just that it seems to be happening at a quicker clip than it used to. In fact, my wife and I are right now on the edge of another change in our stage of life. We've had three beautiful children, and um, my youngest is now 17 going on 30, and she is uh, getting more and more self-sufficient. In fact, I'm just happy she asked me any advice at all. And she does, which is a great kid, but do you know that she's pretty self-sufficient? I don't have to drive her anywhere anymore. Uh, she goes to work, she does her school, she has her friend group, and she's uh, serving in the church, and she's kind of just autonomous. And so uh, more and more in my household, 
Um, I'm hearing, hey, it's dinner for two tonight, which sounds delightful most days. And then there's also this little background of like, yet I also kind of enjoy the noise and the endless banter and the multiple conversations that happen when we're all together as a family too. And so there's a joy in like, hey, it's just my wife and I, finally. And then there's also a little bit of hurt that goes, man, it's kind of a, a change of a season of our life that has kind of been all-encompassing and fact is, any change in your life and mine can be very unsettling. Whether it's a job change, house change, political change, relationship change, and you can fill in the blank. And the process of that, as a Christian, it's easy to forget that we actually have a God that never changes that seeks to be an anchor for your soul and mine. That it doesn't matter what's swirling around on the surface, what storms are brewing on the surface, the anchor goes down deep, so it doesn't matter. So literally, we have an unshakable life, a foundation for our soul that it literally, at the core of our being, does not matter. Not that we don't care, not that we're not part of the process, but that it's not soul-rocking. Our souls are not demolished by what happens around us. Why? Because we have the anchor of Jesus Christ that's into the bedrock of God himself. Sometimes change can be so catastrophic in our souls that we feel the very foundation of our lives isn't stable. And it can feel like our world is falling apart. Okay, now Psalm chapter 11, because this is a psalm that when David's world crumbled, his life did not. So how do we have that same kind of foundation that's unshakable? What, do we, what did he hang on to? And consequently, what can we learn to hang on to? Four quick points, but let's jump into God's word. Psalm chapter 11, verse 1. Say amen, church, if you're there with me. Okay, a few of you need to get on more on board with that. I'm giving you time right now. He's in my talking to look at God's word. Chapter 11, verse 1. Don't trust me in this. Trust God's word. Just go there. Okay, say amen if you're there now. Okay, good job. In the Lord, here's David's statement. In the Lord, I take refuge. It's a brilliant statement right out of the box. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow and they have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. Basically saying, hey, David, you have a gun to your head, run. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? David's answer is in verse 4, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion in their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. You need to be able to say what David is saying, particularly in verse 1, and here's point 1, and I hope you can say this. God is my refuge. He's my place of safety. I'm not seeking safety elsewhere. I'm not trying to have my life be totally answer to everything. I'm not trying to be in control. He's my safety. He's my refuge. In the Lord, I take refuge. Now, textually, uh, scholars think that David is facing one of two options. Number one is, this is a time before he's actually king, that King Saul 
who's still on the throne of uh, the nation of Israel, is seeking to actually kill David. And so David needs to flee and be on the run. And so that's why his counselors here in the text are saying, David, flee to the hills, run to the mountains, because there's safety there. Saul's not going to find you, but your life is at risk. So that's one scenario. The second scenario, and I tend to lean toward this in, in, in the background of this particular psalm, was at the tail end of David's life as king of Israel, when his own son Absalom was uh, usurping the throne, had a little coup d'etat, and Absalom came in and said, I'm going to rule and reign, and David's like, my own son, really? Sabotage. And so he, he had to escape a little bit, or a lot. So I think that's the background. Either way, can you imagine how David's heart and what his counselors are telling him may have felt here when he had, man, a year ago, this wasn't even on my radar. Have you ever said that recently? I would have never expected this to happen. Look how far and how quickly it's changed. I was secure in my kingdom. Life was grand. And then, boom, this happened. That's all in the backdrop. Whatever scenario you want to have as the background for this psalm, that's all in the background of David's mind and in his heart. He has to become a fugitive. So either he's shepherd, tending sheep, doing quite great, slaying giants, and he becomes a fugitive, or he's king and enjoying all the riches of kingship and has to become a fugitive. Either way, he's not in a great circumstance. His world crumbled. In fact, it was unthinkable to David just a few years earlier how this was even happening. And so he gets some bad advice from his well-intentioned friends. I don't believe these guys, his counselor here that is telling him, David, run. David, the foundations are crumbling. There's no hope. I don't believe those are bad intentions of his counselors. David wouldn't have knowingly surrounded himself by people who didn't trust in God, who didn't have his best interest. So he gets some bad counsel from some well-intentioned friends. Run, pull away, be safe, David. Let me pause just a second before I keep going in the text. When are you tempted to run? When are you tempted to pull away rather than press in? What is it relationally, financially, uh, uh, even religiously? What, what causes, causes you to pull away? When, 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 when the pressure mounts, when the resources aren't there, when, when relationships are strained, I guess here's a sub-point under point one. Uh, make sure you're getting godly counsel. Run to, run to get counsel and seek advice from those that have immersed themselves in following God and His Word. Not just well-intentioned people. But let me ask it a different way. When the foundations of your life are shaken, what do you do? What do you do? Do you curl up in the fetal position, pull the covers over your head, act like it's not happening? Do you tune in to the news, your favorite news station, and just listen more intently? Do you become active and like, we're not going to take that? What, what do you do when the foundations are shaken? I remember my daughter, the same said daughter who's 17 going on 30, when she was a toddler. And um, my wife and I were walking down the sidewalk in Texas one day, and I was holding hands with my wife, Christy, and Kylie happened to be uh, like 10 feet in front of us. And right at that moment, uh, some loud motorcycle came by at a pretty fast clip on the road with a very loud 
exhaust system and it, she, she jumped, she went like this and she ran back and grabbed my hand as quickly as she could. Why? She knew with daddy there was security. That's the place of safety for her as a toddler. Right? Do you know that that same thing should be our, our reaction when, when fear enters, we're running back to God himself going, God, I need your hand. And how often we take alternatives instead of just running to the one where true safety lies. Is God your refuge? That's why Proverbs 18.10 says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. So David answers, his friends by saying, God's my refuge. I'm going to trust the Lord. Indeed, God's the only true refuge. I got to share with you, it's not natural to trust God unless you're a child of God and been given a new nature. It's not natural to trust God. It's natural to run. It's natural to trust myself. I remember growing up, my dad, you can finish this verse for me, but on our front door, my dad was adamant that we had this verse from Joshua posted on our front door because he wanted every one of his kids to know that when we left the home, there was something about this house that was different. When we entered the house, there was something that was different. In Joshua 24, 15, as for me and my house, we shall serve the Lord. You know it. He's making it clear. We trusted in God. God is the refuge for people that live in this house. Whether we're out of the house or in the house, He is our refuge. Run to Him. Now, that begs a question, actually, textually. What is it about God that caused David's heart to go, you know what? I'm not running. I'm not going to fear. What is it that David knew about God Himself that caused his heart not to be anxious, even when his life was being threatened. What was different about David? What did he know about the character of God? Here's point two. I know that God is in control. And if you want an unshakable life, you'll have to understand this. He says it in verse 4 is really his answer to his friends who gave some bad advice. Verse 4 is, the Lord is in his holy temple. Like, uh, the, Lord is, the Lord's throne is in heaven, his eyes see. That's what he says. Like, like God sees. I had the privilege on Friday with some of uh, your church staff to play the great game of pickleball. How many of you have played pickleball before? Oh, good for you. It's like a healthy church. Uh, you can be spiritual and not play pickleball. I just don't understand how. No, just Here's the thing. I played pickleball, and um, it was interesting to see because um, um, one unnamed staff member, by the way, pray for your staff. <laughs> but it hit the line. And in pickleball, lines are in, just like a tennis. Lines are in. And, but on the other side, you couldn't see that it hit the line. And, and so uh, it, it, after a few fun comments, it was like, hey, we're just going to do that over. We're not going to argue. We're going to do it over. That's a good cause. And then the next, next serve it went in perfectly, and uh, here was the phrase, uh, the ball don't lie. The ball don't lie, right? And so a uh, better phrase maybe is this, um, God sees. In fact, sometimes when I feel I've been wronged, I'm like, God knows. God knows. 
That's what David is banking on, that God is not absent from the details of his life. God is not distant. He's not like some of the forefathers of this great nation that thought that God just created stuff and then stepped back and remained distant. No, 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 no. In fact, Jesus Christ even clarifies how that's not true. He says, listen, if God in heaven clothes the birds of the air and he robes the flowers of the field in the splendor that they have, he even knows the number of hairs on your head. You don't even know that, but God does. He's that intimate. He's that much part of the details of your life. That's the backdrop that David is resting in. That's the character of God that he knows. Uh, In fact, um, you sing a song here that we sing sometimes in Traverse City Church as well. Uh, He's faithful now. The lyrics of that go, I will speak to my fear. I will preach to my doubt. David's preaching to himself right here. It's like, God's still on the throne. God sees. I will speak to my fear. I'll preach to my doubt that you were faithful then. You'll be faithful now. Now, here's the problem. If we know that God is sovereign, that he controls things, that's what David's saying, God sees, God can control, he's Lord of lords, he's king of kings, and we understand God's sovereignty, we run ourselves into a corner if we don't keep adding to what's also true about God. Because here's what happens. If God is sovereign and God controls and we run into a pickle where our very life is in danger or a circumstance we don't like, we then begin to question whether he's actually good because if he could control, why did he allow this? And so you have to understand something about God. He's not only sovereign, he's also loving. That's termed God's providence. In fact, I have a definition for you. We're studying in Traverse City, we're studying the book of Esther, which is a phenomenal Old Testament book that speaks primarily about God's providence. And here's the definition. It's God's care, his love, and control, his sovereignty, to bring about his loving purposes for his creation, all his creation. Do you know that God's not done with his purpose? for your life or mine or for this world. He's still at work. So what can the righteous do if the foundations are crumbling and shaken? What can the righteous do? Instead, when we see God's providence, his care and control, we come away with a different question. What's impossible for God to do? Nothing. That's the foundation, the anchor for David's soul. Now, We so much love controlling things ourselves. It's actually a myth. I grew up um, in California, and um, there's a park that I went to with my friend quite a bit that was on the very edge of where my mom and dad allowed me to ride my bike. And so it was a, like I always thought I was more grown up than I actually was when I was a little guy. I get to ride my bike all the way to Oeste Park was the name of the park. And so we go to this park, and in this park it had a giant... um, Um, what seemed super big, probably wasn't that big, but uh, it was a giant rocket with a robot eyes at the top, and the the slide in the park was the two arms of the said robot that came down, and it was all metal. I don't know why they constructed out of all metal, so literally the backside of you would get scorched in the summer heat going down the all-metal slide. How many of you have been there before? Okay, you appreciate it. I'm glad we have new materials today. Saying that, 
at the top of this tower, this rocket ship actually, slash robot, there was this panel where you got climbed all the way up to the top of it, there was a panel with controls. And there were levers on it, different colors. And my friend and I would vie for who could get there first and start controlling the rocket ship. Here's the, th here's the deal. It, it wasn't real. The rocket ship went nowhere. But it didn't stop me from going, I want my hands on the controls. Do you know that's true of your life and mine? And if anything in the last couple years have taught us, listen, you don't control as much of your life as you think you do. And there's actually a great freedom that comes from that. Because we know the one who controls, or I hope you do. God's care and control. And so when I say point number two, I know God is in control, by definition, that's not you thinking you're in control. That's a failure, and that will lead to all kinds of worry. In fact, worry, anxiety, is always connected to a loss of sense of control. So, what do you feel maybe in your life, even today, is maybe out of control? What in your world is out of control? And if it's anything other than God himself, you're setting up for an anxious heart. Jesus put it this way, are you building your life on sand or on the rock? Could have easily inserted that text into this passage. Now, David actually has a greater cause. Let's keep moving because um, God is at work. In fact, I'm reading one of my devotional readings right now is um, uh, John Piper's latest book on God's providence coupled with our study in Esther. And um, he says this because... It's so common around here to, to and particularly Western Michigan, we have fantastic sunrises and sunsets. In fact, how many of you have recently just paused, gone to the beach, and witnessed a sunset recently? Oh, a lot of you. Okay, I was up in Traverse City not long ago, Empire Beach, close to it, and, and we, we were on, on the beach waiting the sunset. I was with my sister, and she actually had to use the restroom right at the time the sun was setting, so she goes. We waited there two hours to see the sunset. She has to use the restroom right in the two minutes that the sun is setting, and then came back and missed the whole thing. And I'm like, you missed it! And, and you're leaving. You're not going to see a great Michigan sunset over Lake Michigan. It's beautiful. And, and, and you, do you know what I realized? And John Piper helped me see this. Do you know that God while we see just a glimpse of the sunset, God is actually bringing sunsets and sunrises to the world 24-7, whether we see them or not. We just see a snippet of that. He's never stopped working bringing the beauty to, to people and his creation. He's doing that 24-7. In our perspective, it's just a little snippet. But he's still at work even if the clouds block it. He's still working. He's still bringing it. Have you ever flown in a plane and risen above the clouds and you're like, man, blue sky, it's awesome particularly in February. And, and so you're like, man, I love this. Do you know that God's perpetually working in your life even when you don't see it? He's at work. In fact, David has a greater cause than his immediate circumstance. He's not worried so much about that. He's like, God sees for sure. God's at work. That's why I can trust him. I know that he's in control. He cares for me. David sees the bigger picture. In fact, in the scope of Scripture, we have creation, 
We have uh, uh, God created the world. We have the fall entered quickly, uh, uh, the fall of mankind. Sin enters into the uh, creation narrative. Then we have God all through the nation of Israel bringing to the point of Jesus Christ that is the seed of Abraham. We have redemption, God's redemption plan. And then at the cross, Jesus Christ extends his redemptive plan to you going, don't you know I paid in full for every wrong? You don't have to be judged by God now. You can be loved by God completely as a son and daughter of the king. And so he extends that in redemption. And then ultimately we look forward to restoration. When every knee will bow, when this world, even creation, the Bible says, is groaning for looking forward to that day. God says that I hadn't seen nor ear heard what he has prepared for those who follow him. Can you imagine what heaven is like? You think we see great sunsets now? I wonder if we will see whole new spectrums of color in heaven. Wouldn't that be awesome? God's prepared all of that. That's restoration. Do you know that his purpose hasn't changed? He is still at work in the process of redeeming people. And do you know why ultimately God left you here to bring glory through him by coupling your efforts with his efforts of redeeming people. So let me talk just a little bit about purpose because David understood the bigger narrative of how God was at work when his life was in shambles. He's like, no, I'm trusting God. So we get hijacked in our purpose all the time. And your purpose as a follower of Jesus Christ is to partner with God's greater purpose. That's the only sustainable purpose. So let me, let me unpack this a little bit because uh, we live in western Michigan. The land is particularly in the summertime of boats, of golf, of pickleball, of fishing, of getting ready for the fall hunting trips, of more water sports, of ice cream, amen, new flavors of ice cream. Do you all have Moomers down here? Moomers ice cream? I mean, what is it? What's the ice cream of choice down here? What is it? Country dairy. Oh, yeah, it's brilliant. I'm sure they have flavors that I haven't tested yet and need to test. Um, um, uh, how is it that I made it to Muskegon this trip and have not ate, eaten a Pronto Pup? Don't know how that's possible. Like, what's going, what am I doing with my time? There's so many things that distract that, that are pleasurable, and sometimes it's easy to run our pleasure into the center of our lives, and God gets, and his purpose gets squirted out somewhere to the side or the peripheral of our purpose in life, and we start living for the wrong thing. Not just pleasure. Sometimes we have a passion. We're passionate about something. And we have a heart for something. Do you know that our time and thoughts and energy follow our passions? In fact, I can, I can say what you're passionate about, your money flows to easily. So how's your passion for the things of God? How's your passion for the right things? Or this, possessions. Oh no, I just went there. Listen, here, here's the reality. As a pastor, I've had the privilege by God's grace to do enough funerals to know that you can live in an extraordinary home with all the bells and whistles. In fact, you can have multiple homes and be terribly lonely because you've ran 
possessions to the very center of why you're working and the purpose of your career, and you're missing God's greater purpose for why you actually have been placed in the job you've been placed in by his providence. Or not just possessions, maybe power. Like, I want this. It's a sense of control again. I got to get to this stage of my career or this position. Uh, Also, uh, I just want these people to like me and on and on. And listen, our purpose is to grow in faith and proclaim the person of Jesus Christ. Matthew 28 makes that very clear in the Great Commission. We're to be making disciples. So God's given you a purpose and your purpose must be wrapped up in God's greater purpose. Otherwise, it's not sustainable. You'll get to the end. If anything else other than God's purpose is at the very core of your life, you'll get to the end of it, and it'll be like sand running through your hands. By the way, before I go to point three, this is the main reason that God has given you children. Do you know that if you raise your children and they're the smartest in the school and they go to the best university and they're the the most talented athletically, but you miss relationship with the God of the universe that created them, it's a miss. Your purpose as a parent is to raise disciples that love and know their creator. So even do a little assessment, how much time and energy and effort and discussion and planning, uh, it goes into academics or sports or any other area uh, more than relationship with God. What are you passionate about? Big question, are you connecting your daily life, your daily work with God's greater purpose? Then point number three. What's David also remembering from the text? He says this, I remember God's purpose in testing. Testing? Yeah, it says this, verse four. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his throne in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. That's pretty all-encompassing. That's everyone who's not a children of man. And then verse 5 says this, the Lord tests the righteous. Hey, are you a follower of Jesus Christ? You name the name of Jesus Christ? You're his? I hope you are. And listen, but here's the point. He says he's going to test you. Now, I grew up, uh, I did not particularly enjoy pop quizzes in school. Anyone else enjoy pop quizzes? Like, I had an Algebra 2 teacher that was, um, well, I didn't understand at the time. I thought she was, I'm not going to tell you what I thought she was. It was, it was awful. And, and I thought that she was sabotaging my academic career by not giving us any advance warning about the pop quiz that I walked into in Algebra 2 of all classes. Not my strong suit. I thought she was evil. Like next to Satan. And if you're an Algebra 2 teacher, I'm sure you're loved. And you are. I'm so thankful for you now. I didn't understand. Like I thought she was trying to... like prep us better or something. And I remember complaining to my friends about this Algebra 2 teacher and on and on. Here, do you know that the Lord tests? And the test isn't so much for the one testing, it's the one being tested to show what we don't know. It says the Lord tests us. He tests the righteous. Why? He's seeing, he's looking. He's, he's seen, looking into your life in a very detailed way to take you to the next step of growth so that you stop resting in all the things, the possessions, the pleasures, and having your life centered around those so that you can just simply rest in the truth of who he is. That's why in James chapter 1, it says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. 
for you know that the testing of your faith produces, some says patience, steadfastness. This is what David was doing. I'm not running. I'm going to be steadfast in my faith in God. Can you say that about your own life? The testing is to bring us back into the realization that we need him, that he's providential, both caring and controlling. Let me put it a different way. God wants you to know what soul rest really means. That no matter what swirling around you, no matter what waves, no matter what clouding, no matter what storm, you're like, I'm good in here, I'm good, nothing's going to shake me. Now, you don't do that unless you understand point four and practice point four, which is this. Lastly, I live with an awareness of God's presence and love. Verse 7 says, the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright, I love this phrase, the upright shall behold his face. David didn't need his situation to change in order to know or experience God's love and presence. That wasn't the criteria. He enjoyed God's presence even while he was being hunted, whether from Absalom's soldiers or from Saul's spear. He enjoyed God's presence. This, this phraseology in Hebrew, when it says he beheld his face, it's the, it's the picture of a, it's the image of a father and a son, closeness and, and tenderness and care. That's what's being conveyed here in the psalm. God says God's favor is on the righteous. That leads me to kind of some closing thoughts. How do, how do we become righteous? How do we know we're not under verse 5 and 6 in judgment, and how do we get to verse 7 where we see and behold the presence and love of God? How does that transition? How does David know that he's not an enemy? says those enemies will drink the cup. All throughout Scripture, we see the cup is of God's wrath being poured out. Do you know that we don't need anything else other than the cross of Jesus Christ to prove God's love and care for us? And with that in the backdrop, we go, Jesus took my punishment for sin, the wrath that I deserved from God, Jesus took from God and paid my penalty on the cross so that today he goes, don't you know, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, that he became sin who knew no sin so that you and so that me, we could become the very righteousness of God? Righteous as God? So that we can stand flat-footed when people assail us so that we don't have to worry about what's swirling around. God's on our side. Is that in the backdrop of your day-to-day life and relationships and what goes on in your soul and in your heart toward, toward everything that's happening in all the changes in our world. I imagine there's some opinions in this room 
about what's proper as Americans in relationship to the coronavirus. I imagine there's some opinions in this room about the heartbreak that's happening in Afghanistan. I imagine there's some opinions in this room about the CDC and who's president and whoa, 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 whoa. Be part of the process for sure, so don't hear me saying anything I'm not. But there has to be something that's bigger, that's greater than those concerns and those opinions, and that bigger and greater and better is nothing else than the relationship with God himself through the person of Jesus Christ. And that has to be foremost. Or may I suggest to you that you're building on sand Do you have a vibrant, growing, rest-filled relationship with the God of the universe? Or maybe today's the day you say, I've been searching for everything else and I've run into the very center of my life, everything else, possessions and power and pleasure and and on and on, and, and now I need to have my heart actually changed, so God, I'm asking you to change my heart. I'm going to receive your gift of forgiveness so I'm not under the judgment of God anymore. I'm going to walk free in the person of Jesus Christ. And maybe that's your need today. Maybe your need is just simply to seek his face. And just like in any relationship, whether it's marriage or with your kids, they can get stagnant and they can get on the back burner of our priorities and we can run things of lesser priority into that that position and that spot that it needs to be. And maybe that's describing your relationship with God himself. It's been stagnant because you've been busy doing everything else and it's time to come back. God, you'd say my... Anxious heart has been seeking all all the other things, and today I'm seeking your face. God, I'm coming back. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for your word. God, my commitment, and I pray others will commit the same in this room even now as I'm praying. God, my commitment is that I will trust you in an ever-changing world. God, I acknowledge your power, your care, your control. God, forgive me for the times that you've brought testing, and I will acknowledge your sovereignty and your control, but I won't see it as loving or good. God, forgive me for those times. God, forgive me for not believing that you're loving in all the details of my life. God, my desire is to follow you. because you alone provide an unshakable foundation for my life. It's in the precious name of your Son who makes all these things possible. Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.